0: Welcome to Backstage at the Enharmonic. I'm your host, Sean J. Kennedy. Today's guest is musician Jerry Vivino, most well-known for being Conan O'Brien's saxophone player. It's been a privilege and honor to work with Jerry over the last few years in a variety of academic settings, working with young students. And I've also been privileged to perform with him. Uh, most notably, out at the NAMM show in Anaheim, California, on a number of occasions, when he hosts the Vando Jam, and I even got to play with him on the NAMM show floor at the Con Selmer booth. Today's episode focuses mainly on the positive influence of his parents and his teachers in his formative years, so I hope you enjoy this edition of Backstage at the Unharmonic. Hey Jerry, are you
1: there? Yeah, Sean, Hey, how, how are, are you? you? Yeah, man,
2: good, I'm good, good. how are you? very good. So thanks for taking a few minutes. Uh, you know, we've talked uh, over the past few years about stuff uh, when we've uh, when you've done some clinics for me and different things like that, but I thought it'd be nice to uh, ask some questions and get them recorded in a podcast where uh, people can listen to them uh, whenever they like.
1: Okay, great.
2: Awesome. So most of the, uh, I start all of these podcasts with asking my guests, uh, what is your earliest musical memory? Like, I mean think back as far as you can where do you think music really started to affect you and you noticed music in your life
1: Um it might have been in the womb no I'm kidding Um <laughs> in my growing up as a child in my house um you know my parents were uh my father was a uh trumpet player not a professional but he could have been he just um took another route and he 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 just uh, constantly was playing you know big band uh anything uh, from Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, Stan Getz uh you know my parents tell me from when i was an infant that this kind of music was being played in the house and my mo- my mom loved uh, uh, classical music so i had the both the best worlds orchestral jazz Um, There wasn't any Elvis or any rock and roll or anything like that. That came along later. But um, I think that was, that's what rubbed off on me. And uh, that would be my answer to that. Growing up in an environment where music was uh, played out loud in the house.
2: Did your dad, did he work in like local like wedding bands or anything? Or just play at your house like for fun?
1: My dad, um, my dad, who rests his soul, uh, was a very very fine trumpet player, um, you know. He came over from Italy. He was born in 1927, so you know he's that generation of, of uh, uh, you know, the greatest fabric, greatest generation this country has ever seen. I think he comes from that fabric. And um, my dad played and in, in, uh, started picked up a trumpet uh, in grade school, like we all do. We're introduced through education. Uh, Here in the States, he was introduced to a band instrument, and he took to it like a duck to water. Um, He actually uh, worked as a carpenter from age 12, you know, till he graduated high school, and he paid for his own music lessons. He studied with, um, you know, some some very reputable uh, music teachers uh, in Patterson, New Jersey, where he grew up. Patterson had a great music scene back in the, you know thirties forties fifties through the sixties, and even the seventies so um you know he studied uh, and basically was drafted into the army during world war two um and he was he played in uh in the service kept him here in the states he didn't go overseas uh and he always uh, you know he basically really um was thankful for his music because he felt he would have been, you know, in Germany or Japan or whatever. And, uh, he was a very good musician. When he got out of, um, when he got out of the army, after the bomb was dropped, he was 20 years old. And he said to his father who uh, had a construction company, he said, pop, I want to, I want to be a musician. And his father said, no, you're not. You're going to swing a hammer. You're going to be in the family business. And that was the way it was back then. And he, Played on the side. Um, he did not play in wedding bands. He did not uh, do any of that. Um, he, want, he was basically, would get together with, with jazz players and play. Uh, you know, he didn't want to do the, he, he couldn't do music full time. He didn't want to do it part time. So unfortunately for him, he put the trumpet down. But with, with me, it was, he saw that I took the music and he, he gave me license to do what i wanted and i think it was because of what he went through you know i don't know if that's explained in a very articulate way but that's pretty much uh, what it was about me and my brothers well, we were all into music and he encouraged it he didn't push us but he encouraged it and uh, go ahead live your dream he wasn't allowed to live his dream sure. next my mother uh, um uh you know was um a pianist and a painter. And, you know, she was a woman of the 50s and she was raising the kids and, uh, you know, basically a, a stay-at-home mom, they called it, you know, which is mm-hmm. really doesn't exist today the, the way it did back then. But, um, yeah, so I was around music and they were both very good and I think they both could have pursued music. But, again, it wasn't encouraged by my mother's Upbringing as well. Uh, you're not going to do this. You're going to do this. You know. So she worked in a factory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So next, <laughs> are you crying? Yeah, okay. Is anyone crying? No. Yes,
2: <laughs> I think so. I think to get Yes. No. Yeah. It's a uh, you know it's a common story you hear a lot of, about that and it's great that they uh, encouraged you and your brothers to uh, follow your passions, which is that's incredible.
1: that's exactly right.
2: Yeah. Yep. So. Uh, I know you play just about every woodwind known to mankind. Were woodwinds your first instrument that you played?
1: I um, failed miserably at the uh, guitar because I was, you know, I'm a child of the basically, you know, Roy Rogers, Davy Crockett. I don't know if anyone who's listening to this would know Mm -hmm. about those television programs, but, you know, in the 50s, you know, I was born in 1954. So, you know, when I was five years old, these television shows were, you know, basically, uh, Roy Rogers was a singing cowboy, Gene Autry, and I fell in love with, and there's music, again, drew me into those shows. So because Roy Rogers played the guitar a little bit, I wanted to. And I, uh, I took up the guitar. I got for Christmas a Roy Rogers guitar when I was about seven. And um, my father decided, well, let's try a real guitar. And I failed miserably. Um, my hands were too small. It was too young and, you know, it was uh, too early to start. Um, and so I said, oh, well, how about the xylophone? I love, I love, I wanted to play the xylophone. Um, and, uh, I did pretty good with that. And, you know, we always had a piano in the house, so I noodled with that. My brothers and I will play a little piano. And, um, but I really didn't take to the percussion, uh, you know, the, the xylophone thing for me was, um, a nice experience. I did it for about a year. And uh, really, I didn't play... Uh, the The teacher had the vibraphone. Is that the what Lionel Hampton played? Yes. Is that the, right. the big... Yeah, I mean, I had a little xylophone, you know, a little,
2: okay. and, you know. And
1: I enjoyed it, but then I started... Uh, my father said, let's wait till you're about 9 or 10. But I had a flutophone, which was a plastic recorder called the flutophone. You could still get them. And I got to tell you, I played the, the, there's the piss out of it. You know, I just took to it naturally. I would play melodies, and my father started noticing that I was playing real songs on it that I would hear. And he'd say, how did you learn that? i go, well, I've been listening to this song. You always play these records, you know. And it could be Java by Al Hurd, or it could have been um, The Shadow Your Smile by Boots Randolph. You know, all the music that was in my house, I was, I was taking in without knowing it. And that that to me is um so important for any any young kid to have music and listen uh and if they have the music inside of them, that's going to develop their ears you know, so my father saw that, and he said, "You know what i was he said when you're ten years old, you keep playing this flutophone, maybe we'll start you on the clarinet and that's that's where it all started and I went to the clarinet, and uh, yeah. Basically, I still have that flutophone, and I look really? at it every now and then and say it's because of you. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah.
2: Did you have any favorite clarinet players when you started playing clarinet?
1: Well, um, I was exposed to uh, uh, Ackerbilk. "Stranger on the Shore" was a big hit. <laughs> It was a huge hit on the top, in the pop 40 charts. And, uh, you know, it was 1964, but that was a hit in 62. But my father had the record, so I heard it a lot. And it was it was other songs on that record where um, nobody knows what trouble I've seen. I remember a lot of the tunes on the record, um, Spanish Eyes, you know. And believe it or not, when I got the clarinet, I started playing those songs almost a month into get once my chops got together, again my father said, "What? Well, how did you know?" I said, "Dad, I've been listening to this." So he recognized that I had a good ear, and uh, I said to him, "I want to play the saxophone." And he said, "Nope, five years of clarinet. Wow. Show me you can earn the saxophone." And I studied legit clarinet uh, with with a two different teachers. One was named Charlie Arlington. And the other, uh, Ray Gerard. And Ray Gerard is still alive, and he's in his late 80s, and he's a friend of mine, and he's, he's, he's had the most impact on me because uh, he, he started teaching me clarinet when I was 11. I studied with Charlie for a year. And um, Charlie went on the road, and he recommended Ray. That was Charlie Arlington. And uh, Ray was basically, became like a second father to me. He took me under his wing and noticed that I really loved playing and practiced. and uh, So I studied with Ray all the way through high school. You know, so wow. from eight years, the most important years he, I feel he gave me, you know, one-on-one. You know, I didn't, I didn't learn from the band director. I learned outside of band and then was in band. In the, in the, I wasn't in band in the fourth grade. I took it up in the fifth because I was studying privately at home. And, um, the band directors in my school, uh, which was, um, I was in Patterson, New Jersey. If you didn't, if you didn't study with them, you didn't, you weren't in the band. And, oh, really? uh, my father checked it out and he said, No, I don't want you to study in, in the school. I want you to learn and then you'll go into band. And the band director was very nice and he understood that. And then he auditioned me when I was in fifth grade and, um, I was a member of the band, and fourth grade in grade school when I was a kid was the year that you you had to learn, even if you were, stu- I could have studied outside and still studied in band, but, you know, I, my, my old man was like, you got to s- do math and English too, you know, do music at home, let's see how you do, and then we'll just, you know, it was a pretty good route that he had me take, I think.
2: So you did follow that five year plan that your dad had with the clarinet and then you finally got to a uh, saxophone?
1: That's right. I was fifteen and um mm-hmm. it was just one one Christmas. Um you know, we were Santa Claus was out of our lives, me and, and my brothers. We're all close in age. My, my older brothers two years older than me and my younger ones one year and a older than younger than me and a day. Mm-hmm. And the family once once we were done with uh getting up in the morning, we we had Christmas Eve at home, we'd go to church and then we'd open presents, exchange presents as a family. And um, this was a weird year because we'd see the presents going under the tree from the first week of December, little by little, they'd be wrapped, you know, and, you know, as a kid, as a 14, 15 year old, you always check and see if your name was on, what your name was on. And I, I noticed that my name was on, was on like two little things. And my brothers had three, or four, or five presents apiece, you know. And my father, he came in uh, uh, home from work one day and he said, this is for your mother. And it's, it was all wrapped. And he goes, I want you to hide it in your closet. And Christmas Eve, when I give you the word, you bring it downstairs. So it was a rectangular box, you get it? Wrapped. Okay. Uh-huh. And... um and I, we did all the presents, and, you know, I was 15, so I wasn't going to cry and say, well, how come I only got two presents and my brother's got four, you know? So, so so basically we were done, and I had a pretty glum look on my face, and my father goes, go stick. I'll get that present out of your closet. So I bring it down, and my brothers and me, we said, Mom, this is for you. And she said, you know, Jerry... They called me Jerry Boy because my father was Jerry. They said, Jerry Boy, I can't believe it. You only got two presents. You open it for me. And there it was, a saxophone. Oh, so it was, it was the most incredible Christmas I ever had in my life. To this day, I can't top it. And there's photos of me crying, you know, as a kid. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so then that, there was the tenor. You know, there it was. And as I'm talking to you, it's sitting on a stand. I still have it. It's a Mark VI. The Mark Six, that, Mark 6 wow. in, in uh, 19, I was, it was Christmas of '68. I was going to be 15 in January. Okay, I was 14 technically on December 24th, 25th. But a week later, I was 15. So my father said 15, five years of clarinet. And um, there was saxophone. And um, I, I remember um, vividly asking, knowing that they were expensive. And my father was a hard-working blue-collar guy, you know, and he, I said, how did you, you know, I said to him later, how did you, I can't, just, they're 600 bucks, I said, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you imagine they were $600 in nineteen sixty? I know. You know what it's that amazing. saxophone that I'm looking at is worth right now? But anyway, that, <laughs> yeah. that was a lot of money back then, you know, and, and I realized, again, my old man did this for me, you know, and. And it wasn't just me. He did the same for my my other brothers, you know. And, um, yeah, so there was the tenor. And then I started taking lessons on clarinet with Ray Gerard, tenor and clarinet, yeah. I realized the five years of clarinet made the tenor saxophone, or if, an, if we're an alto or a barry, it would have been the same. It made it so much easier. And, you know, when you when you have clarinet training, the rest of the rest of the single reeds are pretty. The Clarinet's a bitch. It's the, it's the most difficult one to play well. It's the easiest one to play. Kids take to it quickly, but to play it well, I feel is it's the different reed instrument. Flute's pretty difficult too, but clarinet. Um, you know, to ma- any instrument is easy to play, and they're all difficult to master. That's that's my theory, you know.
2: Did you pick up the flute on your own eventually because of the saxophone I want, training? I wanted
1: to play the flute, and my teacher, Ray Gerard, um, he said to me, let's wait till you're 18. Huh. I had really good um, uh, met methods of uh, people who took me through the process of being a doubler, you know, yeah. and, um, and, you know, I waited on the flute again, and um, And I probably could have, you know, kids, there are people that do them in different orders and it works, but it made it so much easier for me because I didn't realize the, the reason that was to wait was because the clarinet fingerings are four different octaves and there's so many different fingerings. That's why it makes it more difficult than saxophone is like, you know, pretty much basic fingerings compared to clarinet, but the flute and the saxophone have similar qualities of, of, uh, of, of, fingering. So, you know, the armatures are the are the difficult thing. They're different armatures. You know. Yeah, so I took the flute up. Um, I studied with Ray Gerard and um, the same guy. And I was 18 years old. Uh, I was, you know, I became 18 in my senior year of high school and I started taking the flute up and I did a lot of, I, I loved the flute so much that I said to Ray and Ray was a great musician. He was You know, he had all worlds covered. He understood uh, the importance of legit, even if you want to be a jazz player, legit uh, uh, study is so important, you know. Yeah, so I I took the flute up with Ray again, and um, now I'm playing three instruments, and then I ended up getting an alto, bought that on my own, and a baritone, and I just compiled... More and more as years went by. I think by the time I was, by the time I was about twenty-seven or twenty-eight, I had, uh, you know, flutes, piccolos, bass clarinets, E-flat clarinet, um, you know, soprano sax, baritone. I had them all, pretty much, alto flute, and I, I um, realized uh, uh, how easy they all were. I think because of the, the clarinet. Tenor flute, the rest were, were a piece of cake for me.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: did you, yeah. Did you
2: ever mess around with any uh, double reads?
1: Yes, I have an oboe yep. here in my um, in my office right now, as my music room, as we speak. Really? I really suck at it. <laughs> 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 I didn't dedicate myself enough to it. Um, you know, I just um, I tried. Uh, I didn't try hard enough, um, and, I'm, and I don't regret it. I mean, I'm not looking at it like, oh, I should have played the oboe. I love right. the oboe. I love the English horn, bassoon, you know, but I just didn't, Um, I, I didn't uh, have time, I felt, to dedicate myself to all of that, you know, making reeds and, you know. In fact, my oboe now, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a color, it's an intermediate oboe and I use a plastic reed on it, you know? hmm. Yeah.
2: And do you, you just do that on your own, just, uh, yeah, I it picked it studio. up.
1: Yeah. I I picked it up um in a music store and never studied with anyone on the oboe, you know. But mm-hmm. I, I basically uh have done a few I I I I did a few gigs where I knew I had two measures of oboe, you know, I could do it. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I respect doubling yeah. so much. I know how important it is and I think that when my flute chops are really considered pretty good, pretty up. And I and I know that um, there were things that I was schooled about with oboe and um, English horn, and it takes away from your flute sound a little bit. And I didn't want to lose that. It opens up uh, your flute sound. I believe that um, there are certainly people out there that could say bullshit, you know, and I and I would agree with them. But it's very few, you know. I have some good friends at double on on oboe, and are excellent flute players. I don't want to say you can't play the flute. If you play the oboe, you know, but it doesn't, you know, oboes, oboes, hours and hours of uh, dedication. I just didn't, I wanted to stick with my single reeds.
0: Mm-hmm. And I was,
1: I was becoming a rock and roll, rhythm and blues, you know, musician on the road and doing that kind of thing, you know, so oboe, it didn't fit in, you know.
2: Now I've seen you demonstrate circular breathing a bunch of times. When did that come about?
1: Circular breathing. Hmm. Um, you're not gonna believe this, but honestly, I haven't I I could never do it. And um I've only been circular breathing for about so my mid I'm, you know, I'm sixty two. I was fifty five. Really? Okay. So this is you know, there's I and I I'd always loved like I I, I remember Rasan seeing him live and and blown away by it, you know, and I saw Lenny Pickett do it, um, with Tower of Power when Lenny and I are exact same age and you know, I was eighteen, nineteen and so was he and he was with Tower of Power and I'm I'm just out of high school and I'm going to the bottom line in New York City to see one of my favorite bands and this kid's up there circular breathing, you know. Um, and I go home and I try it and I just couldn't do it and I kinda gave up. And then, you know, I I You know, when you're done learning, you're done. That's one of my... You're an educator, so you must understand that, Sean. You know, and there was a liner note on a Stan Getz record uh, um, that I read. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of that record. But he started talking about music, and he said that. He said, when you're done learning, you're done. And, you know, he was kind of interviewed. And and I took that as a 15, 16-year-old kid when I started listening to Stan. I said, you know, man, that's something I should take throughout life. And, I, and I, I, in my mid-50s, I said, why don't I do this? So I went online, and it taught me how. So all you kids out there listening, go online and Google circular breathing. And it was a tutorial that was so amazing. I swear I learned it in 48 hours. It took years of trying with, and every teacher I talked to, they didn't know how to teach it. They didn't, you know, ah, you don't have to do that. Or, yeah, it's, na- it's a natural thing. If you can't do it, you can't do it. Well, that's what I thought after a while. I just can't do it. But I went online and I read through three or four paragraphs uh, of, of how to circular breathe. And I couldn't believe it, it was amazing. You take wow. a, a glass of water and a straw and you blow bubbles like you're a little kid. And if you can continue blowing the bubbles as you're inhaling and exhaling, your circular breathing. So you swallow a little water for a little bit. I mean, it, it took me two days, not all day long, just like a few hours each day, just focusing on it. And the the the, the uh, tutorial said, bring a straw in the bathtub with you. Mess around with it. You know, it's all about that. And, you know. And then it suggested that you. Just take your, your neck of the saxophone or, or a barrel and a, a barrel with a, a mouthpiece, you know, the, the mouthpiece and the neck on the saxophone, the barrel of the clarinet with a mouthpiece, and circular breathe on that. Then add another piece, because the longer the tubing, the more difficult. Once you get it, it could be a contrabass sax, and you can circular breathe. It's simple. It's a, it's wow. a cute little thing. I love doing it. It's good for you. It um, it's uh, yoga-like, I mm-hmm. think, and if that means anything to anyone, you know, breathing is breathing is a relaxation. It's it's a stress reliever, too. It's beautiful. Yeah. And uh, that's what I did. So there you go. It's not, not good. You didn't know I started circular breathing so late, right? No,
2: because when you did it, yeah. you, it it killed a couple of times you were down at my school plane, you know. Yeah. Um, unbelievable. Just a few years. It's great.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: I have to ask you one question about the Conan show. At least, I just I, I follow you Conan on TV, of course, and see your uh, social media posts and all that with different guests you've had on. I don't even know if you can answer this question. Um, if you had to pick one or two guests, musical or non-musical, like ones that you were like, "Wow, I'm meeting this person," and like it was a surreal moment for you. Dude. Is there one or two people, or is it just too many to even pick from?
1: Well, you know, that's a great question. Um, cause it's 23 years of doing the show right now, and there's there has been. I mean, you know, we've had uh, Academy Award winners, um, you know, athletes, uh musicians that i've that we've i even got to play with james brown you know they they said we want wow. the horn section you know i mean things like that are like i can't believe this it's like you know the opportunity and it's all about opportunity it's it's not there's so much luck in in uh careers i think because there's so much talent out there you know and i i can i could if i really really gave it a lot of thought i could you know, say, wow. I mean, but you know, what is, what does the wow mean? Dick Van Dyke blows me. I mean, that, that blew me away and it may not someone else, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but the one that got to me the most and to this day, I have to put it on number one is Ted Williams. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm Sean, you know, I'm a baseball fan and I know you are. Of course. And, yep. and, and, you know, a lot of us are a lot of musicians love baseball and by the way your Phillies what a great season it's been so far I mean you must be no tickled pink but, but anyway yeah. um back back to Ted Williams you know Ted was in the wheelchair at the time he um was being honored uh, the greatest living team remember that do you mm-hmm. remember when the Sports Illustrated did the the greatest living century of the, of the, of the players. Yeah. You know, I mean, Ted Williams was the left fielder and Ken Griffey Jr. was the center fielder, you know, Mm -hmm. at the time, Cal Ripken was the shortstop. Okay. Uh, Ernie, or was it Ernie Banks? I don't even remember. I think they had two guys at each position. They had a bunch. Willie Mays was in there, you know, it was a bunch of great guys But Ted Williams. He was, he was the ambassador. In fact, he was the one during that all-star game because it was at Fenway that they were honoring he was like, you know, the guy. So the segment producer, his name is Frank Smiley, who was doing that segment, um, came up to me and said, you know, we're having Ted Williams in a couple of days. Um, We need to screen him for Conan. Um, We know you love baseball and we thought we'd like you to come into the room. So it was more (laughs) than me just meeting him. and shit. I went into a room with Ted Williams, a little cubicle with a segment producer, and they wanted me to list four or five questions. Um, I, I, I talked to him about, um, number one, the shift, the Ted Williams shift, which mm-hmm. today is becoming common in baseball. And he said, well, that didn't last long. Because I, and at the time, no one was shifting. And you know, it was Ted Williams and Willie McCovey. And no one else. So Williams talked about that with me and, uh, and how he could just go the other way and had to stop doing it eventually. And um, and then I asked him about the the all star home run he hit the UFIS pitch. Um, I said, C- can can you clear up the myth? Did you really know because they threw it the first time, and the catcher said we're going to throw it again, Ted. And Ted said the myth was he, th- that Williams said um, you throw it again and it's going into the seats. Right. Mm-hmm. So I asked him, is that myth or is that really true? He goes. Well, I never said it exactly that way. I said, I dare you. I said oh. try it. Yeah, and he and he hit it out. You know, he did it out. But um Right. But the thing about it was that I'm sitting with him, this he's like was like John Wayne, you know. It's just I don't yeah. know I don't know how to explain it. There was something about that man that I was just I was enamored, you know, with and sure enough, that question, he, 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 we, the questions that those guests would get, they have to okay them. And the one with the youth was Conan used it. And that got, that made me feel even, you know, better. Yeah. Wow. But you know, the, Ted Williams, you know, the time that he came, um, he died shortly after that. Uh, you know, it was because of the money made and no pictures, no baseball sign, but I didn't care about that, you know? I just have that memory, you know, which is enough for me. So I think that's pretty much my favorite, yeah. That's a great story. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I feel like I could talk a, a, a little longer with you, but you may have your uh, uh, limit on it, and I appreciate you well, having me. Yeah, I, could, I if you have time, i got two more quick ones. Oh, good.
2: Okay. So here, I usually end most of the segments with these two. So um, on your iPod, Jerry, um, in your rotation right now, uh, what are some of the folks you're listening to or uh, styles or genres that might
1: be on your iPod in the frequently played list? Well, I will answer that question after I say this. I've been for 2 years now, I've been enjoying vinyl. Mhm. <laughs> I love vinyl Me too. again. You know, I'm really digging it. It's so great and it makes me oh, yeah. relax me. I get up off my butt and I flip the record over, you know, okay. But anyway, I do have an iPod, you know, I do have a phone with music in it. Um and you know, it's just it's a lot of Coltrane training Michael Brecker right now. Okay. Stan gets uh, the, you know, then you know when I go to the gym, I try to work out, I get on a bike and I put put the iPod or iPhone, you know, the music that you know, the earbuds are in and I can listen to Dexter till, you know, till the sun comes up. You know, it's just, I love, I, I've, I've just, uh, Jerry Mulligan's another one, you know. It's saxophone. Oh, yeah. It seems to be saxophone, you know. But, you know, when I, when I you know, like I said, when you're done learning, you're done. Um, you know, I'm just exploring uh, so much of what Brecker did. And the, he's the consummate. He's just so incredible. And anyone listening to this, go, go to um, YouTube and put uh, Michael Brecker in Spain. It's it's about 45 minutes. Um, he's alone, a full auditorium, I guess about 1,500, 2,000 people. You could hear a pin drop. When I say he's playing alone, he's unaccompanied for 45 minutes. And me, wow. I mean, I've, I've turned some of my saxophone friends on. A lot of people know of this. You know it's just it's just it blows my mind uh you know i i i had the utmost respect for michael and um you know he's left us with so much uh, you know in the end we're relegated to tape i guess if you're a musician you know uh, but um he'll live on forever he'll it's just it's just wonderful and train you know i mean this is a you know those two to me are, are the consummate and I hate to say that because there's so many others. You know, it's just, you know, it's the same with percussion, right? I mean, if someone right. says it's Buddy Rich, it's Buddy Rich. And what about Mel Lewis? You know, what do, <laughs> yeah, it's that. Right. Uh, let's go back to Cozy Cole where Buddy Rich, you know, admired. Yeah, where did they learn? Yeah. Yeah, you know? Yeah, so I guess that's pretty much it. I mean, I like I love listening to. to um, who has trumpets there's you know a lot of trumpet players and
2: i love his voice too man it's so his oh voice yeah is he's special so cool. things
1: yeah there's yeah. you no know, there's a movie coming out it's out I already that. i think it yeah I, I don't know the name of it but i've heard about it i have got to check it out
2: yeah um, me too yep when you were growing up was there any other uh, career or profession that you ever thought of yourself maybe going to or thinking about or was it always
1: music 100% um, it was always music, my fantasy was to was play second base for the New York Yankees but I figured out okay. by the time I was 16 that was not going to happen um, and by the way Lou Donaldson you know um, was uh, looked at by the St. Louis Cardinals really? he was a hell of a baseball player Yeah. but anyway wow. let me get back to, back to the question okay. um, I, I always, because of my teacher, Ray Gerard, and my band director, a fellow named Joe Silski. um, they, they, my band director was, I was in a seven through 12 school. They were experimenting with what they call junior, senior high schools. And, um, you know, it was, a, well, they, basically the seventh grade through the 12th grade was in one building and, um, our stage band was mixed between seventh graders and i uh, you know uh, I was in a stage band in seventh grade, and that was great because these seniors were i was learning from older kids you know i wasn't like the top banana in seventh grade the mm-hmm. saxophone I had been playing a year or only you know that kind of thing so it you know it basically um basically was a situation where you um uh, 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 you had orchestras and bands and groups that were mixed 7 through 12. My band director handled it very, very well. Um, and I want to be an educator because of him. I thought, boy, this is great. You know, he's teaching, you know, uh, kids and he's playing duets with me and this kid Doug Williams and finding good players and asking us to come in after school. Do you guys want to try some chamber music or you want to do this or, you know. In fact, the stage band, I wasn't in that until the, uh, the ninth grade, uh, but I was in the other groups that he had, orchestral groups and wind ensembles, and all of this music that was offered by him to the young players uh, made me respect uh, what he did. And he'd take his, his clarinet out or his saxophone out and join us, and that was like, oh, my God, my teacher's playing with us. And he'd bring a friend in the chemistry teacher who played the drums. And I was like, oh my god, you know, Mr. Jemba's playing the drums, you know, and it, it and I just thought, you know, this is cool. And I I went to school thinking I would uh, get a teaching degree to fall back on, which my father recommended. And um I just, you know, I would have done that, but I went on the road halfway through college and never went back. Okay. I regret that though. I do. I honestly regret it. But go ahead. So, so yeah, I wanted to I wanted to uh, uh, music was music was a full time player. I, I always wanted to be a studio musician, which how can a kid wanna be that, you know? <laughs> and uh, but I it I became it, you know, I pretty much lived my dream. I think education, um, you know, is uh is as rewarding as finishing a session or doing a gig and you know you sounded great and getting off on the music you play. I think helping uh, young kids um, or anyone for that matter, if you can give something, it's very rewarding. And I think reward is the answer. You know, what makes you feel good out of your work? You know, it's not about the money. It's not about, you know, uh, the fame and all that. There's, it's deeper. It goes way beyond that, you know. I like to give. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. Well, yeah. thanks, man. I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, I hope to see you soon uh, when you're back out I hope of so. Here. Oh, I'd be, that'd be great to do. Great, and man, that you wanted me to do that gig with you. I wish I could have made that. It sounded like a lot of fun, and you have a good one when you're out there. Where is it? And uh, it's coming up next uh, weekend, is it? Yeah, it's in Yardley, actually, yep. Yeah, well, you and you keep going, man. I see what you're doing, and I like it. I, I admire what you're doing, Sean. Thank you, Jerry. All right. Okay. You. All right, I'll talk to you. Take sure, care. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: Today's music was provided by the Max Weinberg 7. To purchase this and other recordings featuring Jerry Bavino, please follow the links below this podcast.